0: Hey there, welcome to the Faces of Marketing podcast, where we talk about the human stories and lives of different people and perspectives in the marketing profession and entrepreneurs and movement makers. This is your host, Ryan Buchanan, and I'm here with my friend, Patrick Kreitzer, president and CEO of Tillamook. Welcome to the show, Patrick. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Awesome. So before we get into some big weighty topics, I wanted to start with what is your favorite ice cream flavor?
1: Ah, that's hands down chocolate peanut butter. Uh, Actually, I think uh, my family accuses me of having eaten chocolate peanut butter ice cream every night for the 10 years before I joined Tillamook, (laughs) so
0: I've kept the streak going. That's actually my wife's favorite too. We're big Tillamook fans, and um, it's almost so addictive that it's like dangerous, you know, uh, to have in your freezer, so. Hard to hold, uh, keep to one bowl, I think. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. So, um, you and I met, I think about a year ago through Tillamook's, uh, EVP of people and culture. Uh, her name's Sheila Murty. She's an amazing woman here and you're lucky to have her. I agree with that. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so I got to know Sheila when she was at Oregon Community Foundation, which you must've gotten to know her there cause you were on the board there. Yep. And, um, So she was part of a small group uh, of leaders in the community, um, men and women of color primarily, and I was one of the few white guys where we convened and she helped to inform uh, this nonprofit that I've co-founded called Emerging Leaders to be, um, it used to just be thought of as an internship only program, as a diverse college aged internship program. And she helped to inform and, and really with our mutual friend, Sue Embry, who's also been on the show, um, kind of helped give a vision for that program to be much more expansive for uh, uh, professionals of color from college to the C-suite and for it to be a leadership program. And so I think what she saw in putting the two of us together is two straight white guy CEOs on a similar journey around equity. And so... Um, I kind of uh, wanted to kick it off with um, your journey and when, when you started to become um, more conscious and aware of your white privilege and just what, what were some of those moments? And I know it's been a journey, but there are moments along the way. If you could kind of talk to us a little bit about that.
1: Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, I mean, cer- certainly a journey. Uh, you know, I had the opportunity early, the, the good, good fortune early. Um, of starting my career at Procter & Gamble, um, which, you know, back even in the early 90s, heavy emphasis on diversity in particular. I think the, the concept of inclusion and ultimately equity have sort of evolved over the, you know, over the last 20 or 30 years. But at that point, um, you know, I really had an opportunity to learn about the, um, the value of diverse perspectives and experiences in the conversation uh, in decision-making um, and so, you know, I've kind of carried that forward with me a bit, but I'll say that certainly over the last two or three years, uh, my understanding of, um, you know, the important dimensions beyond, beyond having diverse voices in the conversation. So, for example, creating an environment where everyone's bringing their authentic self to the conversation, uh, where we're avoiding... Uh, driving things like um assim, you know assimilation that sort of naturally happens when you join a, an organization or, or you know or a community um, and then and, and really sort of looking for ways to uh, break down barriers uh, that folks face because of their ethnicity because of their background uh, because of their orientation uh, because of their immigration status frankly um, and so one, one of the things that as I think about um you know my journey. Uh, you know, so I, I started. Uh, yeah, well, I, I grew up in a family with very little educational background, and then um, and, and and you know uh, certainly modest means, and have felt to some degree like an outsider in a lot of situations. And you know, through education, a lot of hard work, you know, been able to enjoy some career success. And you know, at least internally, I've always sort of thought of that as. You know, my story as an example of, uh, you know, of, of, of the opportunity for people to reach their full potential in, in our society and in, in, in our
0: capitalist, you know, kind of capitalist oriented culture. Like anything is possible. If you yeah. made it, like anybody can make it.
1: Exactly. This kind of concept of, you know, like, well, uh, look, uh, you know, people helped me along the way. Certainly emphasize that um and understood there's a lot of luck involved but you know look this is where we have a system where people you know anybody can make it what what i've certainly come to realize i mean say i would say over the last five or six years much more acutely and 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 certainly the last couple even more so is that that opportunity does not necessarily exist for everyone and that there are barriers um, just sort of institutionalized and societal barriers uh, and inequities that folks face um, that i that I didn't face. Um, well, certainly it doesn't diminish uh, the the pride or satisfaction I take in, in what I've been able to accomplish and the position I've been able to put myself in now in terms of impact. Uh, and again, never believing that that was done all independently. I had lots of help along the way, um, but it's it's certainly shifted my perspective about that story, about that idea that you know anyone can accomplish anything. Uh, in the system we have, because I understand, uh, you know, I'm coming to understand, and, and this is a, you know, a learning orientation and an interest in, to, to serve uh, has allowed me to kind of lean into uh, asking more questions, trying to stay open-minded. And, and certainly I'm, I'm, I'm on the journey somewhere. Uh, certainly don't have a full understanding of it. But as I think about um, kind of my, you know, you asked the question about uh, my journey around equity um, I, I think it's it, certainly even uh, particularly over the last couple of years this idea of how I see my own story and my own experience has certainly shifted and you know I'm fortunate enough to you mention Sheila but there are others in my life that uh, that are generous with their their um, their time and their 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 thoughts and 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 are willing to sit with me and challenge some of the things I say and think and and uh, to the extent that I can, sometimes I struggle with it. But to the extent that I can be as open-minded as possible and
0: hear what they're saying, uh, you know, it's certainly been on a journey that's going to continue. That's awesome. Um, what I like about what I heard and all of that is that it is highly personal and not compartmentalized to like the office environment. And then like, oh, okay, now I'm going to leave that <laughs> at the office and I'm going to go home and. Um, go back to thinking in my personal life like I maybe was, you know, for me raised in a house where we didn't talk about race because, you know, uh, we didn't have to, we didn't, we weren't confronted with it. And it, you you know, taught to not see color and all of these things. Um, and I was raised by super progressive, like amazing parents and family, but um, we've just come a long way into now knowing that those are like now microaggressions to say, We don't see color because it doesn't acknowledge, you know, a person of color's life experience and things like that. So I just, with that being said, um, you know, you shared your personal journey and would love to hear in Tillamook because we're here in your office and it seems like you've made some pretty major strides as a company um, and it probably started with your personal journey. But you, Tillamook is like the Iconic Oregon brand that deals not only with equity, like we're talking about, but this rural and urban um, mashing together. Because you, you're a collection of farmers, but probably a lot of your consumers are urban. And so, how how has like what are some things that you've done here at Tillamook to embrace equity? Um, across some of the things that I mentioned, across race, across the urban-rural piece, things like that. I know it's a really wide topic, but maybe just expand on some of that.
1: Sure, yeah. Um, thanks for the question. I, um, so a couple of the things that um, became clear uh, early on. So I, I came here you know, just about exactly seven years ago, and a couple of things became clear to me. One was we needed, uh, we needed a more uh, diverse set of voices around the table. Um, so for us to make uh, great decisions in this company, uh, we need to bring in folks with different perspectives and backgrounds and, and invite them to bring their authentic self to the, to the conversation. And so um, it, one of the places that was glaring for us was, was around g- leader, gender and leadership. So we had, I think at the time, you know, we had uh, a little over 500 employees and I think we had two women working in the company with the title manager. Uh, today we have 45% of all managers across the business. We have around a thousand employees now, 45% of managers across the business, uh, are women and that, and, and that's a heavy manufacturing intensive environment too, which, you know, which tends to be a little more challenging, um, to, in terms of recruiting gender diversity. And so, uh, we're very proud of that, but the better point of it is that we're, we're making better decisions, um, and so that that was one aspect of how do we get uh, how do we get a more diverse perspectives around the table to make better decisions. Another aspect was that you know, and you mentioned the urban and rural. I mean, we have folks that work in Portland and, frankly, other cities around the country. Um, and we have a lot of folks, and our ownership, the farmers that that uh, live in Tillamook, and most of our employees, 600 plus of our employees are in Tillamook County, and we have another 150 or so in Morrow County, so they're living. In rural areas and you know that that was that's been over time certainly a source of tension and it was at the time but we shifted that pivoted that conversation to say this is this is an asset for us this is a this is a competitive advantage um, and it it will make us better to have urban and rural perspectives uh, within the company inside the company and so um, you know kind of so one bringing in more diversity and then two uh, and inviting them to participate but then two um, you know, uh, seeing sh- shifting the way we see it to be an advantage rather than a, a challenge, um, and we talk about that today. You know, the fact that we're a hundred-year-old co-op, um, and at the same time a growing, uh, innovation-oriented progressive brand. Th- those two things are intention, yes, uh, but they're also they're also an advantage for us. So, you know, in more recent times, we've gotten a lot more intentional about our inclusion and diversity work. Um, you know, through, uh, you know, through hiring practices where we're making sure that candidate pools uh, are more representative of the diverse communities that we're like, we're wanting to draw from and wanting to build here Um, through, you know, training around uh, cultural agility, uh, terminology, you know, awareness within the company, Um, also around our policies and practices and how those uh, create a, a, an environment of intentional inclusion. So, um, rather, or conscious inclusion, we like to call it, rather than unconscious bias, you know, kind of the proactive approach to that. And then social impact as well. And so one of our, meaning how are we impacting the communities um, uh, in which we're operating. And so one of the things that, uh, that I think has been important for us is a couple of years ago, we defined our core values. And one of those core values that we defined was, uh, was um, genuine care for the whole person, and the idea is that we're, we're uh, kind of officially announcing our aspiration to not just see people as the role they're in, the productivity they have for the company or the value they can bring to the, the business operations, but to take steps uh, proactively as a company to serve them as, as the person that they are inside and outside of work. And so, you know, in particular for people that face, uh, you know, social and institutionalized inequity and, and barriers, um, that's part of their life outside of the work as well. And so if we think about the progress we've made, not just in recruiting more women into leadership roles here, but creating an environment in which their, uh, their voice is heard and and their influence is, is positively impacting the business, what are we doing in the communities where they live, Uh, same thing with people of color, as we recruit more people of color here to the company in leadership positions and otherwise, how are we impacting their experience outside the business? So those have been motivating factors for us as well. But certainly, you know, early on, the focus was probably a little bit more on how do we benefit the business with more diverse voices and including those diverse voices and decisions. And it's sort of evolved to this point around this value of uh, genuine care for for the individuals that work here and the communities uh, and our
0: obligation of social impact in the communities where we're operating. That's cool. I think for us, we're a little different in that we're, um, we're not nearly a 1000 employees, but uh, our changes happen so fast, and we don't quite have the infrastructure to have a large HR department and things like that, where, you know, what I would imagine at Tillamook is that you're systematizing these things and you know, at my agency at thesis, we're like catching up with some of that systematizing and it's been very intentional, but very organic. And, um, and one of the things that I heard from one of our directors, um, that I think a lot of people that are maybe newer on their journey, uh, in HR and when you're hiring and you, you often talk about a cultural fit and that that mentality can really play into more homogenous culture because you're like, you, you talked about assimilating. And one of the things that he mentioned is like in, in his creative department, um, and design who they talk about, and we've now adopted it throughout the whole company, but a cultural addition, you know, so like where life experience is valued and that, really looking across the whole team of what is needed um, to complement the whole team instead of very individual, you know, did you go to Ivy League school or did you go to this very um, traditional pipeline of where companies typically look at? We we really look differently at our pipeline and stuff like that. So mm. I don't know. Those are some of the things that that you all do yeah
1: absolutely that I mean that idea of uh, fit versus being additive to the culture really resonates with me and it's something that we've tried to focus on here Um, you know fit is a dangerous concept because it can easily just evolve into the into same which would be the easiest implementation of that you know the the same uh, you know same communication style same relatable background, same interests, uh, same industry, whatever it happens to be. And so uh, I'm a big believer in, in putting that sort of somewhere in the process, that screen on a hire that says, uh, what is this person bringing to my team, to the team dynamics, the team thought process, the team capabilities that I don't have today? And if I can't answer that question, I think I need to keep looking. No matter how talented uh, and how great a culture fit that person is going to be. If they're not adding something to the team, um, then, you know, I, th- I think we probably aren't doing as well as we could with the hire. And a lot of times, and so if that's an objective, then working up the funnel uh, in terms of the candidates you're surfacing to make sure you're surfacing candidates with a range of backgrounds and experiences and, um, and life experiences I think is important.
0: Yeah, um, just because this is a marketing podcast and um, I was doing a little bit of research before, uh, before meeting with you here, um, I noticed a couple of things that kind of reinforce what we're talking about. Um, six years ago in 2013, uh, I saw online at this Oregon Business Plan Summit that you were keynoting and there was a video that like had all this beautiful Oregon imagery uh, I think the the quote in there is like the wagon trains came in the 1840s and they kept going west as far as um, as far as the west they could go. Uh, you or I or anyone else could claim 640 acres and it was yours if you made any improvements to the land. So I looked at that video and then um, kind of compared it to you know kind of the the language and the video of the challenger project that just um just a, a year or two ago and one of the things that like before i really had my awakening moment which was uh, at the end of 2015 and i'm not sure if this was youtube but like um that language and the way it was with the imagery and it was like oh i'm an oregonian like i like tillamook all the way but if we look at that the it's actually not really true because um only 30% of americans are white men and white men were the only ones that could get the 640 acres um you know there there's a lot of women in america and then uh in america is almost uh 40% non-white right now so um so anyway i just i wonder if that it, it must be intentional that the language that you're using externally, not just, we've been talking everything internally, um, has changed because you've grown so much in your equity journey as a company. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, that's a really
1: interesting example because I think you're right on that, you know, at the time that video was put together, uh, which actually an interesting side story about that video from a marketing standpoint. So that whole voiceover, uh, you know, it's, I don't know. It's like three or four minutes long was actually just an interview with the head of the Oregon or the Tillamook Historical Society. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just went on and it was so great that we said, let's just run that. There was no script. There was no actual voiceover intention. But your, your point is a really great one, which is that, you know, I've seen that video so many times, as you can imagine. And it that just didn't occur to me that that language uh, was that this was not true. Like you and I or I or anyone else, yet yeah, the guy who said it and I would qualify, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of people wouldn't. And, um, and you know, so I think it's a great example of how, um, you know, putting a, a more culturally sensitive Lens and an equity lens on the marketing communication is so important. In that case, uh, you know, if we were to do that today, w- are we any less proud of our history or heritage related to the company? No, uh, but uh, would we have included that line that I think is you know is insensitive? No, I don't think. We, I'm sure we wouldn't include it today. So I think that's a really interesting point. Um, and, you know, so in terms of marketing, the, the way our marketing is today, I think you can – well, I'm not going to say, uh, you know, that that – you know, that focusing on our history and heritage in the way that we did then was inherently bad or that the from – from an equity standpoint or that the marketing uh, that we're doing now is targeted, you know, is driven primarily uh, – with an equity objective what i will say is that you can see the lens difference so when we won't dairy the dairy done right campaign which is one of our big which was the point of our big shift in the in the topic of conversation for that challenger uh video that you referenced um there you know there are uh you know there, there are various uh uh elements of photography that include people of color um for example one in particular there's a there's a pair of hands breaking a two-pound block of cheese, which is not easy to do, by the way. But you know, kind of on video and slow motion, and and, and you know, they're black hands. And I've had several people say to me, "Hey, I noticed that. That, that was really great." And so, well, I don't I don't know that the you know that it was the primary driver or would be for either kind of campaign. Um, certainly, you can see the evolution in what you're pointing out in terms of our sensitivity uh, to the issue. And you know, we. Um, you know, the intention uh, is to be conclu- inclusive, certainly not to perpetuate uh, societal issues um, and
0: as we can to advance, uh, advance the progress that we need to make. Awesome. Cool. Um, yeah, so we're going to switch gears to our regular programming on the podcast <laughs> um, and really just getting to know your story personally, um, not necessarily solely through an equity lens, but just kind of how you grew up, Um, I think it was in rural Oregon or outside maybe suburbs or rural uh, here in Oregon and kind of what it was like growing up, you know, do you have siblings, mom and dad, what, what, how how was it like Patrick as a boy? Yeah, so uh, I, um, my parents were divorced when I was very young
1: and I lived with my mom uh, in Northeast Portland. Um, so
0: th- maybe not that rural. No,
1: but we're getting there. <laughs> we'll get to that part of the story. Yeah. Um, so I lived with my mom uh, in Northeast Portland uh, and in the Hollywood District, and we uh, until I was 12, and then I moved in. My mom ran into some uh, financial issues that, and she had. Uh, uh, I have a sister uh, that's a couple years younger than I am. That's uh, we have the same parents, and then. I have two other much younger sisters that have a different father. And, um, and so, you know, sort of taking stock of her economic situation, uh, she came to uh, my sister and I, the one next down, and said, you're going you're gonna to need to go live with your dad. So we moved in with him, um, his wife, and my three stepsisters uh, when I was 12 years old out in Corbett. So there's the rural part, uh, kind of not too far out of, out of Portland, you know, just a 30 minute drive or so, but certainly a rural area. We lived on several acres and had some animals, you know,
0: cow and some. And that was back and in the day, right? When Corbett was way out there.
1: Cor- yeah. Corbett well, Yeah, Corbett was farther away back then, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I went to, uh, Corbett middle school, Corbett high school, um, you know pretty small school there uh, then. Uh, my graduating class, class of 1986, uh, Corbett Cardinals was, there were 49 of us in my graduating class, so quite a small yeah. school.
0: Yeah. Were you into sports and, you know, what kind of stuff were you into?
1: Yeah, well, the cool thing about being in a school with like, you know, whatever, 180 people in it or something, 200 people, is that you get to do everything. So, uh, yeah, I, I played football and wrestle and I was uh, student body president and, you know, kind of pretty active in the school. Uh, And, uh, you know, kind of – it definitely, because it was so small, felt like sort of one class, one community, clearly, when you're dealing with that few people, Um, more so than, you know, my kids go to larger schools, and it definitely is
0: kind of more split up in terms of the groups. And so – and, like, did you – were you big into the outdoors or I, I kind of want to know like what, what'd you do as a kid on the weekends? Like, you know, 10 year old boy.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I mean at, at 10, I was riding my bike around Northeast Portland until the streetlights came on and we all raced home. Right. So, um, so, you know, but, uh, I really was into sports always growing up, played basketball before high school, before I switched to wrestling, but, um, you know, d- definitely into sports, like to be outside, running around, getting into trouble at that age. And then, you know, as I got older and we and moved out to Corbett, um, certainly I did appreciate, although probably not as much as I do now, did appreciate the, uh, the forests and the hikes and the things that we could do out there. But, you know, in, in high school, I was a busy guy. I mean, sports all year round, and uh, I studied really hard. I was very much into school. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I feel like a couple teachers early on, uh, either either they were right or n- not, but they convinced me that I had an aptitude for academics. And as I mentioned before, um, my uh, p- uh, n- no one in my family had been to college before, and in fact, my dad's father dropped out of school in the fifth grade. And so, um, but you know, sort of as I as I as I got great support and continued to kind of. Um, You know, achieve in school. I realized this. Hey, there's something here to this. I can win at this. I can, I can do well in school. I can leverage that into a into a college education, and then who knows? I could do great things someday. So for me, academics sort of materialized as that opportunity to, uh, to to really you know kind of create a a life of impact that I wanted to.
0: And what because. I work with so many college kids and my daughter's about to go to college next year or, or in a year. Always am super curious, like what drove the decision of, I would imagine you had a lot of options in front of you. Why you dub and was it their engineering program or was it just like, yeah. Why university of Washington?
1: So, uh, yeah, good question. Ha- having, having just gone, having gone through this in the last four years with three of my kids in terms of what schools they picked and, and how competitive it is in everything? It's funny to think back on 1986 because how I fig- how I learned about schools, how I got the application to put in a typewriter—like I have no idea. I mean, this is such a different, you know, different world at the time. But it, you didn't tour a lot of schools when no, you were a kid, yeah? No, there like, was there was no touring happening. There was no uh, um, the the when I when, when when my dad drove me up to Seattle and we landed on the University of Washington campus. It was the first time I'd been on a college campus in my life. So, you know, there, there were, there wasn't a lot of, you know, input, but what I do recall finding somewhere getting in there, not, not on the internet back then. Right. But finding somewhere in the library or something, a list of the top ranked engineering schools, um, in the country. And so, uh, I applied to a few of those and, uh, UW seemed the most within reach. Um, also the, um, I don't know if it still does, but University Washington had a Oregon Washington had a reciprocity program, so um, you can get in-state tuition. You can get in-state tuition if you. So I think the deal was if you were one of the top uh, GPA students from Oregon at a Washington school, you know they they, they would go down the list and pick a certain number, and then you could get in-state tuition. So I was working towards that, and I did end up ultimately getting that. But um, but that that was a factor, and you know just no money to fly places and. You know, all that. Just the
0: opportunity to drive up there. Right. Got it. Um, So if you had to think about most of the time in our lives, and kind of the premise of this podcast is often um, something that happened in your kind of foundational years, which typically is uh, high school, college, and right after, um, do you have, is there... Was it that moment of moving to corporate at 12 years old, or was there another moment in that 12 to 22 time frame where it was like a big obstacle that you overcame? That it was like either very independent, um, so maybe going to college, um, or it was just really hard, and you it gave you more grit and perseverance. And so it's like, oh, this allowed me to be on a leadership track because of something hard I overcame or independent or both?
1: Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I, a couple things come to mind. One is that certainly that move into my dad's house. Cause at the, at the time my dad, uh, with another partner was starting a business, um, which, you know, ultimately did not, you know, pan out the way he wanted to. But during those first couple of years that I moved into his house, he was working, you know, 24 hours a day, sleeping at the office, doing all that. And so there was, there was a, there was a pretty rapid transition to a lot of independence so two things one is I got to see how hard he was working uh which was inspiring uh you know look he's pouring himself into something and then the other thing was just here I am on kind of on my own you know to and from school and practices and and meals and all that and um and you know I, I just sort of adopted this probably level of independence you know, another thing, you know, we talked about the, the UW transition or move up to Washington. And, um, you know, I can think of a lot of times in my life, I sort of referenced this earlier, where I felt really out of place, you know, showing up on a college campus. Like, you know, we showed up, we went to the dorm, uh, then realized I need bedding because the school doesn't supply that. You don't know that if you've never been to college, I and, guess. And
0: no conversations in your family about college because you were the first to go to college. So, yeah, so many. Here's what to
1: expect. Right. None of that, yeah. right? None of that going on. And so, so you know, that's one example. I mean, certainly later at Harvard Business School, you know, even some elements of just sort of day-to-day living, like uh, being in a restaurant, you know, what to do exactly, you know, those kinds of things sort of have emerged for me constantly. Uh, like and I, how to go on a date. How to go on a date. Yeah, any of that stuff, right? I mean, it's just like, uh, okay, I'm gonna try this and it, we'll figure it out, right? And so there's there's some amount of kind of vulnerability that kind of helps in those situations. Um, And, and just sort of this learning orientation, like what, what are other people saying? What are other people doing? What, how are they acting and how do I need to act to be able to fit into this situation? And so, well, certainly, I mean, referencing our earlier part of the discussion around around equity, I mean, certainly I enjoy a lot of advantages as a, as a white male, but, um, but there's a lot of just sort of discomfort and then it works out. And so I feel like that's a pattern That's kind of stuck with me and it it translates into business, you know, kind of our approach to business strategy or things that I want to, you know, teach my kids or get involved in outside of work is that, you know, I don't know, let's try it and see if we can make it work. Um, And if we believe enough that it will and we, you know, we work hard and we make smart decisions along the way, we'll figure it out.
0: Yeah, I mean, as an entrepreneur, I absolutely relate to just try it, like, you know, jump and we'll figure out, (laughs) figure it out along the way. So that definitely resonates. Um, so I wanted to build off of graduate from UW. Um, and I saw, it's not that I did that much research, but there were a couple (laughs) good videos (laughs) online. Um, one of them was with our mutual friend, Craig Wessel, publisher of the Portland business journal. Um, and I guess the question here is, it seems like you had a, incredibly positive experience with the like a leadership training or a, almost like an academy within Procter and Gamble and if you had to choose between that and Harvard Business School and everything that comes with that the network and the education all that stuff which do you think was more beneficial to your personal professional growth
1: I mean both both certainly. Uh, have afforded uh, benefits and, and and a lot of learning. But, I, I mean, I if I had to pick one, I'd pick the P&G experience, the Procter & Gamble experience. I mean, the opportunity to be a, a shift leader, you know, at age 22 uh, and all the humility that comes with that and all the learning that comes from managing 28 people that are all your parents' age, you know, kind of quote-unquote managing, right, learning how to adjust to that and and how to approach leadership from a servant uh kind of from a service orientation, that that was tremendous. And then kind of referencing the, the earlier comment about, uh, I mean, the, the values that uh, P&G, um, you know, kind of implemented or, or leveraged or worked built off of in day-to-day decisions was, was really strong. You know, and, and I would say, too, that um, the P&G experience really colored my view of what business can and should be in that I, I see um, – You know, I see business as an important uh, pillar of our society that not only can but has an obligation uh, to uh, play an important role in the progress we are making and need to make. And, um, I mean, business creates economic activity that provides jobs and funds uh, state and federal tax payroll or tax rolls. Um, but way beyond that, and I know there's a lot in the news about this lately about you know the business roundtable coming out with a multi-stakeholder model versus the um, you know fiduciary obligation just to the financial stake, financial shareholders. Um, but I, I really see business as that as that that opportunity, not just to impact the employees, the work at the business, and their families and their kind of by association their communities or churches or whatever it happens to be, but also um, just how communities need to show up in the, how companies need to show up in the
0: community. Yeah. I was nodding at my head a lot in that the way that I would say it in maybe a few less words is that business can be a, a platform for good in the community and it's an amplifier. Um, so when I look at, you know, other entrepreneurs, friends of mine are like, well, when are you going to sell the company? And, you know, uh, Basically, sit back and be some retired guy that maybe does a volunteer thing here or there. And that's just not interesting to me because I feel like, um, you know, you have a thousand employees here at Tillamook, we have 120 at Thesis. And if you can inspire your employees to uh, get engaged in specific areas, maybe it's around equity or things like that it's, you're amplifying by a thousand, you're amplifying by 120 versus as a retired, you're just another retired old white guy. <laughs> like that doesn't have as much impact because you, you can't amplify what your your employee base can get engaged in. And so, and then that ripples throughout all of society. So I think, you know, obviously B Corp is a community, we're not a B Corp yet, but um, there's a lot of like-minded companies like Tillamook and Thesis in Portland, especially. Uh, And, you know, I I just think it's important for people to not think, oh, government and nonprofits are going to solve this and business needs to just be purely greedy capitalist pigs. Like, it's just not, it's not good for business, frankly. So...
1: No, I agree. And I think, I mean, you're a great example of how uh, Thesis gives you that platform to, you know, do good, not just within the company, but then through your employees and their activities and then and then in, into the community uh, through your role at, at Thesis and, and, and the leverage that gives you so that. No, that's
0: fantastic. You didn't have to say nice things about me. Yeah. You didn't. <laughs> Happy to. Maybe I'll ask you some questions, yeah, too. No. <laughs> that's another time. Another time. <laughs> uh, we only got a couple questions left. Um, so you have had a professional journey of going from Procter & Gamble, then you went to business school, then Disney, Nike, then this, um, a total shift in going to smart forest with a very, uh, you know, kind of embedded in the Portland scene as far as a, uh, angel slash venture partner, uh, and then went back to kind of mid-sized companies with Farmer Brother, Coffee Bean International, and now Tillamook. So I wanted to give that context and uh, to the to our 173 listeners. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, what was the what was kind of one of the hardest things that you've had to endure? Um, as and it's always like the most painful things are often the things that are the biggest learning opportunities but you would never seek them out because they're so painful um do you have one or two of those moments in that in that path
1: yeah sure i mean i think the 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 coffee bean international sort of farmer brothers kind of situation and transition really was that it was very challenging and it gave me a lot of opportunity to learn, and I'm very grateful for that opportunity. So, you know, uh, we had, Coffee Bean International was a great company. When I joined it, it had been around 40 years, pretty small business, um, and just great people and great culture and, and and product. And so we grew it pretty rapidly um, through some really fun years of expansion. Um, and then... Um, Sold it to, and it was private equity owned. So the, you know, private equity partners that get to the end of their their investment life cycle and and sold it to Farmer Brothers, which was uh, you know a publicly traded Nasdaq traded company uh, based in Los Angeles. And so then we, um, so the CEO of Farmer Brothers, who had acquired us, said, you know, you guys are on a great trajectory. You've got a great strategy, and you know, in, in part of the sale, I agreed to a lockup. You know, it's pretty common, right? So I've got to stick right around. On. I actually agreed to 3 years. Part of it was cuz I really loved the company and I wanted to, kind of wanted to keep doing it and part of it was just, you know, kind of negotiating and and all
0: that stuff. So it's typically it's a year. Like what I've seen is private equity companies leave the uh, the company that's been acquired alone for like a year. And then literally at the 366th day, it's like, okay, making big changes. It, It feels like that from the outside. No, I think that's right. And so it's certainly, I knew I was agreeing
1: to a really long lockup, but you know, the, the arrangement, uh, what I believed would happen was, you know and the ceo who had acquired us told me like look what you're doing is fantastic you're the growth engine for the company you keep doing what you're doing and we don't really need to do a lot of integration here we'll look for opportunities but you can stay very independent um you know and he said he's got some other things he's going to focus on so you know that and i liked i really loved that company in fact a lot of the people that worked there work here at tillamook now um, it was just a great it's just a great culture and great business and so um i wanted to stick around and so but during that period um, Farmer Brothers made another acquisition and, um, that didn't go very well. And it was a, it was a bigger one than ours and, and that didn't go very well. And so what had happened was a couple of things. One is there was some pull gravitational pull towards integration. So I was getting pulled more into sort of being on the leadership team of the parent company and I was resisting that. And so there was a phase where I was just kind of trying to like stay away from the parent company. And, you know, somebody gave me some great advice and said, Hey, if you're if you're in this situation, make the most of it. Like leaning out is not doing anything for anyone. You're not learning anything. You're not having an impact. If you don't like the the situation, lean in and make a positive impact. And you know that was one of those moments for me, like somebody hitting on you on the side of the head with a two by four. Okay, wait, you're right. All right, I can I can have a positive impact. So I started to lean in more to that situation. Act like a member of the leadership team of the parent company. Contribute to Overcoming some of the challenges associated with this other um, acquisition that they had made, and then through a crazy series of events, um, I find myself as co-CEO of the parent company um, fairly suddenly. And so, um, and the parent company, Farmer Brothers, was was you know stock price had dropped from eighteen to four. It was losing six million in cash a month, kind of losing thousands of customers a year. It was just kind of a death spiral and. Had um, thousands of employees spread all over the country, and you know a lot of them were leaving, and just a lot going on, and so, um, so you know, leaning into the situation better prepared me to serve the organization in that way. The other part of that story, just to kind of cut it short, but is that um, it, while I was a publicly traded company, there was um, there there was a significant shareholding by sort of the third generation of of the guy that had founded, the family that had founded the company. They were pretty big stock shareholders. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, they had a unreasonable and unwarranted uh, kind of uh, dislike or distrust of me, I think because they didn't really like the acquisition that the, uh, of our company in the first place. And so the whole time that I'm trying to work r- 24 hours a day, seven days a week, spend week the week every week in LA and all over the country trying to turn this company around, which was going to benefit them um, they were, uh, they were sabotaging. You. They were, yeah. They, and investigating me with private investigators and crazy stuff was happening. Like stuff that you, you, you know, were
0: getting followed around. I was, yeah. And people like
1: friends of mine would get knocks on the door, like on a Saturday morning and they call me and say some, weird private eye. just call, And I, I kept calling this family and saying, let's just sit down. I'm like the least interesting person you're ever going to investigate. There's nothing that you can't know. But uh, but anyway, so th- th- it's, a, it's a longer story. But the, the point of that was, you know, we got the stock price back up. We got a cash flow positive. Uh, we got uh, employees reengaged. We got customer accounts turned in the positive direction. And it was a really successful turnaround. A lot of people involved, not just me, but my co-CEO and the rest of the team. Um, and you know, we served that family well, in terms of their, the, the, the future of their company that their grandfather had founded and their economic situation. And yet they never, you know, they never, they never sort of recognized that and weren't gonna come and thank me and, and shake my hand. Um, but you know, my role was to serve them and it helped me be empathized with where they were. They, they didn't know anything about the business. They weren't involved in it before. They were scared of the changes. They were concerned about what was happening. They didn't understand what was happening. And, you know, my role was to serve them, uh, even in the face of their kind of, uh, strange behavior. And, um, and, you know, I've, I, have, I haven't fit, <clears throat> haven't faced that kind of, uh, strange, like opposition from the inside again hopefully I never will but it did teach me to try my best to understand where somebody else is coming from and to understand my role in the situation and in this case it was to serve these folks Um, that's
0: what I had signed up for and that's what I was there to do. It's just to use an analogy I I've only had a couple scenarios where rocks are being thrown at me either internally or in a public uh, way and it's gotta be hard to like, to do that day in and day out when it's, um, <laughs> yeah, when, when it's not just one incident kind of from the outside, but it's literally nonstop every day.
1: Yeah. It was very difficult. I mean, it was a year, it was a long year. It was a lot of work. I mean, a crazy turnaround of a big company, a lot of difficult decisions. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, but what a lear- what a learning experience, what a phenomenal learning experience. And, uh, uh yeah folks can throw some pretty big rocks at me now and i i i'm, I'm i can take it i am used
0: to it but uh um but I'm proud of what we got done there and got done for their benefit yeah okay so last question i gonna um I'm just really personally intrigued by this, and I think a lot of people are um out there in the community uh the the question is is what do you love most about being c e o specifically here at telemook but the where it comes from is i'm an entrepreneur and so i uh the only thing i know is to kind of start something from nothing um and you had a little bit of that with you know smartforce you were working with a lot of startups and things like that but i just think it's what's interesting about your path and um joth from dutch bros and what have you is There, you got the training around brand, uh, maybe at Procter and Gamble. I just, it's so you're running a thousand person company. Um, it just is you, you have to have a sense of brand and marketing. Like what, what does it kind of take? What do you look for if you were to hire say in 25 years? another one of you here to take over or you know how, how do you get to be CEO of a large consumer company yeah I yeah I mean it's one one thing that's interesting about
1: the CEO role and you, you know this is it's it is a unique role people sort of I don't know if it's subconsciously think of it as uh, a, an amalgamation of all the other roles in the company or something but it's not it's a, it's a unique role where you're in you're sitting in a unique position to or uh, almost sort of, you know, kind of air elevation to see, you know, small parts of everything, uh, rather than going deep on anything,
0: financial marketing, ops, yeah, people, all of that
1: exactly relationship to external stakeholders, all of that stuff. And, and so it it is a it is a unique role. And until until you're in it, I don't think you really can understand or appreciate it. I mean, folks, uh, you know, when you think about it, like if, if you're leading sales for an organization, you know, you could push a little bit because the finance, you know, person is going to say, like, wait, we can't do all that stuff, right? But when you're the CEO, there's no one no, no one's whose shoulder is up against your shoulder to push back on the crazy idea that you know is probably like 150 percent overblown, but you know you'll get scaled back to 100. So there's a little bit of that. It's a little disorienting from that standpoint. But you know the thing is, it's also a unique role in that everyone else is really there to do to do the work of the business and and so you know what what's left for the CEO to do, um, you know certainly connecting dots across all the different functions you talked about. But I think more than anything, it's supporting and developing the people in the organization and. Um, you know, we've had great fortune here at Tillmook to attract and retain some phenomenal talent and, you know, I'm here to serve them in their capacities that they're, that they're, uh, where they're leading and how they're serving the business. And, you know, um, one of the things that the CEO role does for you is by, by absolving you of some of the day-to-day responsibility of, you know, planning next year's marketing campaign or closing the books. Uh, it allows you then the space to think about how the organization works, how people are supported, how they're developing, um, and how they're working across the organization with each other. Uh, you know, the other thing for me is that, um, you know, I, um, I'm very focused on culture, and that's something that's developed over time. Um, certainly, I've had to influence in all of those companies, but and for two reasons. One is because I think culture is a competitive advantage. How we all work together today relative to how the competition works with each other today is what's going to really make us win in the marketplace. I mean I, I believe execution is 80% of it and strategy 20%. So culture uh, is what drives execution you know how we get the best thinking and talent and energy from everyone and how they all work together. So I think culture is a competitive advantage but the other thing is um, culture, can provide a fulfilling and enriching experience for the employees. And so as I've progressed in my career, that second objective has elevated. And I still love the scoreboard. I love to win as much as everybody else, market share, return to shareholders, everything else. But I also have increasingly uh, kind of become uh, interested in and weighted this idea of what experience are we creating for the people that work here. And so back to your question about the CEO role, the CEO is in a unique position to 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 make broad sweeping changes that affect how people work together and 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 what their experience is is at the business and how their careers progress and how again back to our value of how we're um you know supporting
0: people and genuinely caring about their them as a whole person awesome loved the conversation thanks for being on the show Patrick thanks so much ryan it was a lot of fun awesome cheers